Chapter Twenty Three of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Twenty Three Lost in the Sky. Without effort at concealment, I hastened to the vicinity of our quarters, where I felt sure I should find Kantos Khan. As I neared the building, I became more careful, as I judged, and rightly, that the place would be guarded. Several men in civilian metal loitered near the front entrance, and in the rear were others. My only means of reaching unseen the upper story where our apartments were situated was through an adjoining building, and after considerable maneuvering I managed to attain the roof of a shop several doors away. Leaping from roof to roof, I soon reached an open window in the building where I hoped to find the heliumite, and in another moment I stood in the room before him. He was alone, and showed no surprise at my coming, saying he had expected me much earlier, as my tour of duty must have ended some time since. I saw that he knew nothing of the events of the day at the palace, and when I had enlightened him he was all excitement. The news that Dejah Thoris had promised her hand to Sabthan filled him with dismay. "'It cannot be!' he exclaimed. "'It is impossible!' Why, no man in all Helium but would prefer death to the selling of our loved princess to the ruling house of Zodanga. She must have lost her mind to have assented to such an atrocious bargain. You, who do not know how we of Helium love the members of our ruling house, cannot appreciate the horror with which I contemplate such an unholy alliance. What can be done, John Carter, he continued? You are a resourceful man. Can you not think of some way to save Helium from this disgrace? If I can come within sword's reach of Sabthan, I answered, I can solve the difficulty insofar as Helium is concerned. But, for personal reasons, I would prefer that another struck the blow that frees Dejah Thoris. Kantos Khan eyed me narrowly before he spoke. You love her, he said. Does she know it? She knows it, Kantos Khan and repulses me only because she has promised to Sabthan. The splendid fellow sprang to his feet, and grasping me by the shoulder, raised his sword on high, exclaiming, And had the choice been left to me, I could not have chosen a more fitting mate for the first princess of Barzoom. Here is my hand upon your shoulder, John Carter, and my word that Sabthan shall go out at the point of my sword for the sake of my love for Helium for Dejah Thoris, and for you. This very night I shall try to reach his quarters in the palace. How? I asked. You are strongly guarded, and a quadruple force patrols the sky. He bent his head in thought a moment, then raised it with an air of confidence. I only need to pass these guards, and I can do it, he said at last. I know a secret entrance to the palace, through the pinnacle of the highest tower. I fell upon it by chance one day as I was passing above the palace on patrol duty. In this work it is required that we investigate any unusual occurrence we may witness, and a face peering from the pinnacle of the high tower of the palace was, to me, most unusual. I therefore drew near and discovered that the possessor of the peering face was none other than Sabthan. He was slightly put out at being detected and commanded me to keep the matter to myself, 
explaining that the passage from the tower led directly to his apartments and was known only to him. If I can reach the roof of the barracks and get my machine, I can be in Sabthon's quarters in five minutes. But how am I to escape from this building, guarded as you say it is? How well are the machine sheds at the barracks guarded, I asked. There is usually but one man on duty there at night upon the roof. Go to the roof of this building, Kantos Khan, and wait me there. Without stopping to explain my plans, I retraced my way to the street and hastened to the barracks. I did not dare to enter the building, filled as it was with members of the Air Scout Squadron, who, in common with all Zodanga, were on the lookout for me. The building was an enormous one, rearing its lofty head fully a thousand feet into the air. But few buildings in Zodanga were higher than these barracks, though several topped it by a few hundred feet. The docks of the great battleships of the line, standing some fifteen hundred feet from the ground, while the freight and passenger stations of the merchant squadrons rose nearly as high. It was a long climb up the face of the building, and one fraught with much danger. But there was no other way, and so I essayed the task. The fact that Barsoomian architecture is extremely ornate made the feat much simpler than I had anticipated, since I found ornamental ledges and projections which fairly formed a perfect ladder for me all the way to the eaves of the building. Here I met my first real obstacle. The eaves projected nearly twenty feet from the wall to which I clung, and though I encircled the great building I could find no opening through them. The top floor was alight and filled with soldiers engaged in the pastimes of their kind. I could not, therefore, reach the roof through the building. There was one slight desperate chance, and that I decided I must take. It was for Dejah Thoris, and no man has lived who would not risk a thousand deaths for such as she. Clinging to the wall with my feet and one hand, I unloosened one of the long leather straps of my trappings, at the end of which dangled a great hook, by which air sailors are hung to the sides and bottoms of their craft for various purposes of repair, and by means of which landing parties are lowered to the ground from the battleships. I swung this hook cautiously to the roof several times before it finally found lodgment. Gently I pulled on it to strengthen its hold, but whether it would bear the weight of my body I did not know. It might be barely caught upon the very outer verge of the roof, so that, as my body swung out at the end of the strap, it would slip off and launch me to the pavement a thousand feet below. An instant I hesitated, and then, releasing my grasp upon the supporting ornament, I swung out into space at the end of the strap. Far below me lay the brilliantly lighted streets, the hard pavements, and death. There was a little jerk at the top of the supporting eaves, and a nasty, slipping, grating sound which turned me cold with apprehension. Then the hook caught, and I was safe. Clambering quickly aloft, I grasped the edge of the eaves and drew myself to the surface of the roof above. As I gained my feet, I was confronted by the sentry on duty into the muzzle of whose revolver I found myself looking. "'Who are you, and whence came you?' he cried. 
I am an air scout, friend, and very near a dead one, for just by the merest chance I escaped falling to the avenue below, I replied. But how came you upon the roof, man? No one has landed or come up from the building for the past hour. Quick, explain yourself, or I call the guard. Look you here, sentry, and you shall see how I came, and how close a shave I had to not coming at all, I answered, turning toward the edge of the roof, where twenty feet below at the end of my strap hung all my weapons. The fellow, acting on impulse of curiosity, stepped to my side, and to his undoing, for as he leaned to peer over the eaves, I grasped him by his throat and his pistol arm, and threw him heavily to the roof. The weapon dropped from his grasp, and my fingers choked off his attempted cry for assistance. I gagged and bound him, and then hung him over the edge of the roof, as I myself had hung a few moments before. I knew it would be morning before he would be discovered, and I needed all the time that I could gain. Donning my trappings and weapons, I hastened to the sheds, and soon had out both my machine and Kanto's comms. Making his fast behind mine, I started my engine, and skimming over the edge of the roof, I dove down into the streets of the city far below the plain usually occupied by the air patrol. In less than a minute I was settling safely upon the roof of our apartment, beside the astonished Kantos Khan. I lost no time in explanation, but plunged immediately into a discussion of our plans for the immediate future. It was decided that I was to try to make helium, while Kantos Khan was to enter the palace and dispatch Saab Tham. If successful, he was then to follow me. He set my compass for me, a clever little device which will remain steadfastly fixed upon any given point on the surface of Barsoom, and bidding each other farewell, we rose together and sped in the direction of the palace which lay in the route which I must take to reach Helium. As we neared the high tower, a patrol shot down from above, throwing its piercing searchlight full upon my craft, and a voice roared out a command to halt following with a shot as I paid no attention to his hail. Kantos Khan dropped quickly into the darkness, while I rose steadily and at terrific speed raced through the Martian sky, followed by a dozen of the air scout craft which had joined the pursuit, and later by a swift cruiser carrying a hundred men and a battery of rapid-fire guns. By twisting and turning my little machine, now rising and now falling, I managed to elude their searchlights most of the time, but I was also losing ground by these tactics, and so I decided to hazard everything on a straightaway course and leave the result to fate and the speed of my machine. Kantos Khan had shown me a trick of gearing, which is known only to the Navy of Helium, that greatly increased the speed of our machines, so that I felt sure I could distance my pursuers if I could dodge their projectiles for a few moments. As I sped through the air, the screeching of the bullets around me convinced me that only by a miracle could I escape. But the die was cast, and throwing on full speed, I raced a straight course toward Helium. Gradually I left my pursuers further and further behind, and I was just congratulating myself on my lucky escape, when a well-directed shot from the cruiser exploded at the prow of my little craft. The concussion nearly capsized her and with a sickening plunge she hurtled downward through the dark night. How far I fell before I regained control of the plane I do not know, 
but I must have been very close to the ground when I started to rise again, as I plainly heard the squealing of animals below me. Rising again, I scanned the heavens for my pursuers, and finally making out their lights far behind me, saw that they were landing, evidently in search of me. Not until their lights were no longer discernible did I venture to flash my little lamp upon my compass, and then I found, to my consternation, that a fragment of the projectile had utterly destroyed my only guide, as well as my pedometer. It was true I could follow the stars in the general direction of helium, but without knowing the exact location of the city or the speed at which I was travelling, my chances for finding it were slim. Helium lies a thousand miles southwest of Zodanga, and with my compass intact, I should have made the trip, barring accidents, in between four and five hours. As it turned out, however, morning found me speeding over a vast expanse of dead sea bottom after nearly six hours of continuous flight at high speed. Presently a great city showed below me, but it was not helium as that alone of all Barsoomian metropolises consists in two immense circular walled cities about seventy-five miles apart, and would have been easily distinguishable from the altitude at which I was flying. Believing that I had come too far to the north and west, I turned back in a southeasterly direction, passing, during the forenoon, several other large cities, but none resembling the description which Kantos Khan had given me of helium. In addition to the twin city formation of helium, another distinguishing feature is the two immense towers, one a vivid scarlet, rising nearly a mile into the air from the center of one of the cities, while the other a bright yellow and of the same height marks her sister. End of chapter 23《Chapter Twenty Four of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Twenty Four Tars Tarkas Finds a Friend. About noon I passed low over a great dead city of ancient Mars, and as I skimmed out across the plain beyond, I came full upon some several thousand green warriors engaged in a terrific battle. Scarcely had I seen them than a volley of shots was directed at me, and with the almost unfailing accuracy of their aim my little craft was instantly a ruined wreck, sinking erratically to the ground. I fell almost directly in the center of the fierce combat among warriors who had not seen my approach so busily were they engaged in life-and-death struggles. The men were fighting on foot with long swords, while an occasional shot from a sharpshooter on the outskirts of the conflict would bring down a warrior who might for an instant separate himself from the entangled mass. As my machine sank among them, I realized that it was fight or die, with good chances of dying in any event, and so I struck the ground with drawn longsword, ready to defend myself as I could. I fell beside a huge monster who was engaged with three antagonists, and as I glanced at his fierce face, filled with the light of battle, I recognized Tars Tarkas the Thark. He did not see me, as I was a trifle behind him, and just then the three warriors opposing him, and whom I recognized as Warhoons, charged simultaneously, 
the mighty fellow made quick work of one of them but in stepping back for another thrust he fell over a dead body behind him and was down and at the mercy of his foes in an instant quick as lightning they were upon him and tars tarkas would have been gathered to his fathers in short order had i not sprung before his prostrate form and engaged his adversaries i had accounted for one of them when the mighty thark regained his feet and quickly settled the other he gave me one look and a slight smile touched his grim lip as touching my shoulder he said i would scarcely recognize you john carter but there is no other mortal upon barsoom who would have done what you have done for me i think i have learned that there is such a thing as friendship my friend he said no more nor was there opportunity for the warhoons were closing in about us and together we fought shoulder to shoulder during all that long hot afternoon until the tide of battle turned and the remnant of the fierce warhoon horde fell back upon their throats and fled into the gathering darkness ten thousand men had been engaged in that titanic struggle and upon the field of battle lay three thousand dead neither side asked or gave quarter nor did they attempt to take prisoners on our return to the city after the battle we had gone directly to tars tarkas quarters where i was left alone while the chieftain attended the customary council which immediately follows an engagement as i sat awaiting the return of the green warrior i heard something move in an adjoining apartment and as i glanced up there rushed suddenly upon me a huge and hideous creature which bore me backward upon the pile of silks and furs upon which i had been reclining it was woola faithful loving woola he had found his way back to thark and as tars tarkas later told me had gone immediately to my former quarters where he had taken up his pathetic and seemingly hopeless watch for my return Talhagis knows that you are here, John Carter, said Tarstarkas, on his return from the Jeddak's quarters. Sarkoja saw and recognized you as we were returning. Talhagis has ordered me to bring you before him tonight. I have ten thoats, John Carter. You may take your choice from among them, and I will accompany you to the nearest waterway that leads to Helium. Tarstarkas may be a cruel green warrior, but he can be a friend as well. Come we must start and when you return tars tarkas i asked the wild calots possibly or worse he replied unless i should chance to have the opportunity i have so long waited of battling with talhagis we will stay tars tarkas and see talhagis tonight you shall not sacrifice yourself and it may be that tonight you can have the chance you wait he objected strenuously, saying that Talhagis often flew into wild fits of passion at the mere thought of the blow I had dealt him, and that if he ever laid his hands upon me I would be subjected to the most horrible tortures. While we were eating, I repeated to Tars Tarkas the story which Sola had told me that night upon the sea-bottom during the march to Thark. He said but little the muscles of his face worked in passion and in agony at recollection of the horrors which had been heaped upon the only thing he had ever loved in all his cold cruel terrible existence he no longer demurred when i suggested that we go before talhagis 
only saying that he would like to speak to Sarkoja first. At his request I accompanied him to her quarters, and the look of venomous hatred she cast upon me was almost adequate recompense for any future misfortunes this accidental return to Thark might bring me. Sarkoja, said Tars Tarkas, forty years ago you were instrumental in bringing about the torture and death of a woman named Gozava. I have just discovered that the warrior who loved that woman has learned of your part in the transaction. He may not kill you, Sarkoja. It is not our custom. But there is nothing to prevent him tying one end of a strap about your neck and the other end to a wild thoat, merely to test your fitness to survive and help perpetuate our race. Having heard that he would do this on the morrow, I thought it only right to warn you, for I am a just man. The river Ish is but a short pilgrimage, Sarkoja. Come, John Carter. The next morning Sarkoja was gone, nor was she ever seen after. In silence we hastened to the Jeddak's palace, where we were immediately admitted to his presence. In fact, he could scarcely wait to see me, and was standing erect upon his platform, glowering at the entrance as I came in. Strap him to that pillar, he shrieked. We shall see who it is dare strike the mighty Talhagus. Heat the irons. With my own hands I shall burn the eyes from his head, that he may not pollute my person with his vile gaze. Chieftains of Thark, I cried, turning to the assembled council and ignoring Talhagus. I have been a chief among you and today I have fought for Thark shoulder to shoulder with her greatest warrior. You owe me at least a hearing. I have won that much today. You claim to be a just people. Silence! roared Talhagis. Gag the creature and bind him as I command. Justice, Talhagis! exclaimed Lorquas Tomo. Who are you to set aside the customs of ages among the Tharks? Yes, justice! echoed a dozen voices. And so, while Talhagis fumed and frothed, I continued, You are a brave people, and you love bravery. But where was your mighty Jeddak during the fighting today? I did not see him in the thick of battle. He was not there. He rends defenseless women and little children in his lair. But how recently has one of you seen him fight with men? Why, even I, a midget beside him felled him with a single blow of my fist. Is it of such that the Tharks fashion their jeddaks? There stands beside me now a great Thark, a mighty warrior and a noble man. Chieftains, how sounds Tars Tarkas, jeddak of Thark? A roar of deep-toned applause greeted this suggestion. It but remains for this council to command until Hages must prove his fitness to rule. Were he a brave man, he would invite Tars Tarkas to combat, for he does not love him. But Talhagis is afraid. Talhagis, your Jeddak, is a coward. With my bare hands I could kill him, and he knows it. After I ceased there was tense silence as all eyes were riveted upon Talhagis. He did not speak or move, 
but the blotchy green of his countenance turned livid, and the froth froze upon his lips. Tal Aegis, said Lorquas Ptomel in a cold, hard voice, never in my long life have I seen a Jeddak of the Tharks so humiliated. There could be but one answer to this arraignment. We wait it. And still Talhegis stood as though petrified. Chieftains, continued Lorquas Ptomel, shall the Jeddak Talhegis prove his fitness to rule over Tar's carcass? There were twenty chieftains about the rostrum, and twenty swords flashed high in ascent. There was no alternative. That decree was final, and so Talhegis drew his long sword and advanced to meet Tars Tarkas. The combat was soon over, and with his foot upon the neck of the dead monster, Tars Tarkas became Jeddak among the Tharks. His first act was to make me a full-fledged chieftain with the rank I had won by my combats the first few weeks of my captivity among them. Seeing the favorable disposition of the warriors toward Tars Tarkas as well as toward me, I grasped the opportunity to enlist them in my cause against Zodanga. I told Tars Tarkas the story of my adventures, and in a few words had explained to him the thought I had in mind. John Carter has made a proposal, he said, addressing the council, which meets with my sanction. I shall put it to you briefly. Dejah Thoris, the princess of Helium, who is our prisoner, is now held by the Jeddak of Zodanga, whose son she must wed to save her country from devastation at the hands of the Zodangan forces. John Carter suggests that we rescue her and return her to Helium. The loot of Zodanga would be magnificent, and I have often thought that had we an alliance with the people of Helium, we could obtain sufficient assurance of sustenance to permit us to increase the size and frequency of our hatchings, and thus become unquestionably supreme among the green men of all Barsoom. What say you? It was a chance to fight, an opportunity to loot, and they rose to the bait as a speckled trout to a fly. For Tharks they were wildly enthusiastic, and before another half-hour had passed, twenty mounted messengers were speeding across dead sea-bottoms to call the hordes together for the expedition. In three days we were on the march towards Zodanga, one hundred thousand strong, as Tars Tarkas had been able to enlist the services of three smaller hordes on the promise of the great loot of Zodanga. At the head of the column I rode beside the great Thark, while at the heels of my mount trotted my beloved Wula. We traveled entirely by night, timing our marches so that we camped during the day at deserted cities, where, even to the beasts, we were all kept indoors during the daylight hours. On the march, Tars Tarkas, through his remarkable ability and statesmanship, enlisted fifty thousand more warriors from various hordes, so that ten days after we set out, we halted at midnight outside the great walled city of Zodanga, one hundred and fifty thousand strong. The fighting strength and efficiency of this horde of ferocious green monsters was equivalent to ten times the number of red men. Never in the history of Barsoom, Tars Tarkas told me, had such a force of green warriors marched to battle together. It was a monstrous task 
to keep even a semblance of harmony among them, and it was a marvel to me that he got them to the city without a mighty battle among themselves. But as we neared Zodanga their personal quarrels were submerged by their greater hatred for the red men, and especially for the Zodangans, who had for years waged a ruthless campaign of extermination against the green men, directing special attention toward despoiling their incubators. Now that we were before Zodanga, the task of obtaining entry to the city devolved upon me, and directing Tars Tarkas to hold his forces in two divisions out of earshot of the city, with each division opposite a large gateway, I took twenty dismounted warriors and approached one of the small gates that pierced the walls at short intervals. These gates have no regular guard, but are covered by sentries, who patrol the avenue that encircles the city, just within the walls, much as our metropolitan police patrol their beats. The walls of Zodanga are seventy-five feet in height and fifty feet thick. They are built of enormous blocks of carborundum, and the task of entering the city seemed, to my escort of green warriors, an impossibility. The fellows who had been detailed to accompany me were of one of the smaller hordes and therefore did not know me. Placing three of them with their faces to the wall and arms locked, I commanded two more to mount to their shoulders, and a sixth I ordered to climb upon the shoulders of the upper two. The head of the topmost warrior towered over forty feet from the ground. In this way, with ten warriors, I built a series of three steps from the ground to the shoulders of the topmost man. Then, starting from a short distance behind them, I ran swiftly up from one tier to the next, and with a final bound from the broad shoulders of the highest, I clutched the top of the great wall and quietly drew myself to its broad expanse. After me I dragged six lengths of leather from an equal number of my warriors. These lengths we had previously fastened together, and passing one end to the topmost warrior, I lowered the other end cautiously over the opposite side of the wall toward the avenue below. No one was in sight, so, lowering myself to the end of my leather strap, I dropped the remaining thirty feet to the pavement below. I had learned from Kantos Khan the secret of opening these gates, and in another moment my twenty great fighting men stood within the doomed city of Zodanga. I found to my delight that I had entered at the lower boundary of the enormous palace grounds. The building itself showed in the distance a blaze of glorious light, and on the instant I determined to lead a detachment of warriors directly within the palace itself, while the balance of the great horde was attacking the barracks of the soldiery. Dispatching one of my men to Tars Tarkas for a detail of fifty tharks, with word of my intentions, I ordered ten warriors to capture and open one of the great gates while with the nine remaining I took the other. We were to do our work quietly. No shots were to be fired, and no general advance made until I had reached the palace with my fifty tharks. Our plans worked to perfection. The two sentries we met were dispatched to their fathers upon the banks of the lost sea of Chorus, and the guards at both gates followed them in silence. End of chapter 24
Chapter Twenty Five of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Twenty Five: The Looting of Zodanga. As the great gate where I stood swung open, my fifty tharks, headed by Tars Tarkas himself, rode in upon their mighty thoats. I led them to the palace walls, which I negotiated easily without assistance. Once inside, however, the gate gave me considerable trouble, but I finally was rewarded by seeing it swing upon its huge hinges, and soon my fierce escort was riding across the gardens of the Jeddak of Zodanga. As we approached the palace, I could see through the great windows of the first floor into the brilliantly illuminated audience chamber of Thonkosis. The immense hall was crowded with nobles and their women, as though some important function was in progress. There was not a guard in sight without the palace, due, I presume, to the fact that the city and palace walls were considered impregnable, and so I came close and peered within. At one end of the chamber, upon massive golden thrones encrusted with diamonds, sat Thon Kosis and his consort surrounded by officers and dignitaries of state. Before them stretched a broad aisle lined on either side with soldiery, and as I looked, there entered this aisle at the far end of the hall the head of a procession which advanced to the foot of the throne. First there marched four officers of the Jeddak's guard, bearing a huge salver, on which reposed, upon a cushion of scarlet silk, a great golden chain with a collar and padlock at each end. Directly behind these officers came four others, carrying a similar salver, which supported the magnificent ornaments of a prince and princess of the reigning house of Zodanga. At the foot of the throne these two parties separated and halted, facing each other at opposite sides of the aisle. Then came more dignitaries, and the officers of the palace and of the army, and finally two figures entirely muffled in scarlet silk, so that not a feature of either was discernible. These two stopped at the foot of the throne facing Thonkosis. When the balance of the procession had entered and assumed their stations, Thonkosis addressed the couple standing before him. I could not hear his words, but presently two officers advanced and removed the scarlet robe from one of the figures, and I saw that Kantos Khan had failed in his mission, for it was Saab Thon, Prince of Zodanga, who stood revealed before me. Don Kosis now took a set of the ornaments from one of the salvers, and placed one of the collars of gold about his son's neck, springing the padlock fast. After a few more words, addressed to Saab Thon, he turned to the other figure, from which the officers now removed the enshrouding silks disclosing to my now comprehending view Deja Thoris, Princess of Helium. The object of the ceremony was clear to me. In another moment Deja Thoris would be joined forever to the Prince of Zodanga. It was an impressive and beautiful ceremony, I presume, but to me it seemed the most fiendish sight I had ever witnessed, and as the ornaments were adjusted upon her beautiful figure, and her collar of gold, Swung open in the hands of Thon Kosis, I raised my long sword above my head, and, with the heavy hilt, 
I shattered the glass of the great window and sprang into the midst of the astonished assemblage. With a bound I was on the steps of the platform beside Thoncosis, and, as he stood riveted with surprise, I brought my longsword down upon the golden chain that would have bound Dejathoris to another. In an instant all was confusion. A thousand drawn swords menaced me from every quarter, and Zabthon sprang upon me with a jeweled dagger he had drawn from his nuptial ornaments. I could have killed him as easily as I might a fly, but the age-old custom of Barsoom stayed my hand, and grasping his wrist as the dagger flew toward my heart, I held him as though in a vice, and with my longsword pointed to the far end of the hall. Zodonga has fallen, I cried. Look. All eyes turned in the direction I indicated, and there, forging through the portals of the entranceway, rode Tars Tarkas and his fifty warriors on their great thoats. A cry of alarm and amazement broke from the assemblage, but no word of fear, and in a moment the soldiers and nobles of Zodonga were hurling themselves upon the advancing Tharks. Thrusting Sabthon headlong from the platform, I drew Dejathoris to my side. Behind the throne was a narrow doorway, and in this Thoncosis now stood facing me with drawn longsword. In an instant we were engaged, and I found no mean antagonist. As we circled upon the broad platform, I saw Sabthon rushing up the steps to aid his father, but as he raised his hand to strike, Dejathoris sprang before him, and then my sword found the spot that made Sabthon Jeddak of Zodanka. As his father rolled dead upon the floor, the new Jeddak tore himself free from Dejathor's grasp, and again we faced each other. He was soon joined by a quartet of officers, and with my back against a golden throne, I fought once again for Dejathoris. I was hard-pressed to defend myself and yet not strike down Sabthon, and with him my last chance to win the woman I loved. My blade was swinging with the rapidity of lightning as I sought to parry the thrusts and cuts of my opponents. Two I had disarmed, and one was down, when several more rushed to the aid of their new ruler, and to avenge the death of the old. As they advanced there were cries of, The woman! The woman! Strike her down! It is her plot! Kill her! Kill her! Calling to Dejathoris to get behind me, I worked my way toward the little doorway back of the throne. But the officers realized my intentions, and three of them sprang in behind me and blocked my chances for gaining a position where I could have defended Dejathoris against an army of swordsmen. The Tharks were having their hands full in the center of the room, and I began to realize that nothing short of a miracle could save Dejathoris and myself when I saw Tars Tarkas surging through the crowd of pygmies that swarmed about him. With one swing of his mighty longsword, he laid a dozen corpses at his feet, and so he hewed a pathway before him until in another moment he stood upon the platform beside me, dealing death and destruction left and right. The bravery of the Zedongans was awe-inspiring. Not one attempted to escape. And when the fighting ceased, it was because only Tharks remained alive in the great hall, other than Dejathoris and myself. Sabthon lay dead beside his father, 
and the corpses of the flower of Zodongan nobility and chivalry covered the floor of the bloody shambles. My first thought when the battle was over was for Kantos Khan, and leaving Dejothoris in charge of Tars Tarkas, I took a dozen warriors and hastened to the dungeons beneath the palace. The jailers had all left to join the fighters in the throne room, so we searched the labyrinthine prison without opposition. I called Kantos Khan's name aloud in each new corridor and compartment, and finally I was rewarded by hearing a faint response. Guided by the sound, we soon found him helpless in a dark recess. He was overjoyed at seeing me, and to know the meaning of the fight, faint echoes of which had reached his prison cell. He told me that the air patrol had captured him before he reached the high tower of the palace, so that he had not even seen Sabthan. We discovered that it would be futile to attempt to cut away the bars and chains which held him prisoner, so, at his suggestion, I returned to search the bodies on the floor above for keys to open the padlocks of his cell and of his chains. Fortunately, among the first I examined, I found his jailer, and soon we had Kantos Khan with us in the throne room. The sounds of heavy firing, mingled with shouts and cries, came to us from the city's streets and Tars Tarkas hastened away to direct the fighting without. Kantos Khan accompanied him to act as guide, the green warriors commencing a thorough search of the palace for other Zodongans and for loot, and Ajathoris and I were left alone. She had sunk into one of the golden thrones, and as I turned to her she greeted me with a wan smile. Was there ever such a man, she exclaimed, I know that Barsoom has never before seen your like. Can it be that all earthmen are as you? Alone, a stranger, hunted, threatened, persecuted. You have done in a few short months what in all the past ages of Barsoom no man has ever done. Join together the wild hordes of the sea-bottoms and brought them to fight as allies of a red Martian people. The answer is easy, Dejathoris, I replied, smiling. It was not I who did it. It was love. Love for Dejathoris, a power that would work greater miracles than this you have seen. A pretty flush overspread her face, and she answered, You may say that now, John Carter, and I may listen, for I am free. And more still, I have to say, ere it is again too late, I returned. I have done many strange things in my life, many things that wiser men would not have dared. But never, in my wildest fancies, have I dreamed of winning a Dejathoris for myself. For never had I dreamed that in all the universe dwelt such a woman as the Princess of Helium. That you are a princess does not abash me. But that you are you is enough to make me doubt my sanity, as I ask you, my princess, to be mine. He does not need to be abashed, who so well knew the answer to his plea before the plea were made, she replied, rising and placing her dear hands upon my shoulders. And so I took her in my arms and kissed her. And thus, in the midst of a city of wild conflict, filled with the alarms of war, with death and destruction reaping their terrible harvest around her, 
did Dejah Thoris, princess of Helium, true daughter of Mars, the god of war, promise herself in marriage to John Carter, gentleman of Virginia. End of chapter 25Chapter Twenty Six of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Twenty Six, Through Carnage to Joy. Some time later, Taurus Tarkas and Kantos Khan returned to report that Zodanga had been completely reduced. Her forces were entirely destroyed or captured and no further resistance was to be expected from within. Several battleships had escaped, but there were thousands of war and merchant vessels under guard of Thark warriors. The lesser hordes had commenced looting and quarreling among themselves, so it was decided that we collect what warriors we could, man as many vessels as possible with Zodongan prisoners, and make for Helium without further loss of time. Five hours later we sailed from the roofs of the dock buildings with a fleet of two hundred and fifty battleships, carrying nearly one hundred thousand green warriors, followed by a fleet of transports with our thoats. Behind us we left the stricken city in the fierce and brutal clutches of some forty thousand green warriors of the lesser hordes. They were looting, murdering, and fighting among themselves. In a hundred places they had applied the torch and columns of dense smoke were rising above the city as though to blot out from the eye of heaven the horrid sights beneath in the middle of the afternoon we sighted the scarlet and yellow towers of helium and a short time later a great fleet of zodongan battleships rose from the camps of the besiegers without the city and advanced to meet us the banners of helium had been strung from stem to stern of each of our mighty craft but the zodongans did not need this sign to realize that we were enemies, for our green Martian warriors had opened fire upon them almost as they left the ground. With their uncanny marksmanship they raked the oncoming fleet with volley after volley. The twin cities of Helium, perceiving that we were friends, sent out hundreds of vessels to aid us, and then began the first real air battle I had ever witnessed. The vessels carrying our green warriors were kept circling above the contending fleets of Helium and Zodanga, since their batteries were useless in the hands of the Tharks, who, having no navy, have no skill in naval gunnery. Their small-arm fire, however, was most effective, and the final outcome of the engagement was strongly influenced, if not wholly determined, by their presence. At first, the two forces circled at the same altitude, pouring broadside after broadside into each other. Presently, a great hole was torn in the hull of one of the immense battlecraft from the Zodongan camp. With a lurch, she turned completely over, the little figures of her crew plunging, turning, and twisting toward the ground a thousand feet below. Then, with sickening velocity, she tore after them almost completely burying herself in the soft loam of the ancient sea-bottom. A wild cry of exultation arose from the Heliumite squadron, and with redoubled ferocity they fell upon the Zodongan fleet. By a pretty maneuver, two of the vessels of Helium gained a position above their adversaries, from which they poured upon them, from their keel-bomb batteries, a perfect torrent of exploding bombs 
Then one by one the battleships of Helium succeeded in rising above the Zodongans, and in a short time a number of the beleaguering battleships were drifting hopeless wrecks toward the high scarlet tower of Greater Helium. Several others attempted to escape, but they were soon surrounded by thousands of tiny individual flyers, and above each hung a monster battleship of Helium ready to drop boarding parties upon their decks. Within but little more than an hour from the moment the victorious Sudangan squadron had risen to meet us from the camp of the besiegers, the battle was over, and the remaining vessels of the conquered Zodongans were headed toward the cities of Helium under prize crews. There was an extremely pathetic side to the surrender of these mighty flyers, the result of an age-old custom which demanded that surrender should be signaled by the voluntary plunging to earth of the commander of the vanquished vessel. One after another the brave fellows, holding their colors high above their heads, leaped from the towering bows of their mighty craft to an awful death. Not until the commander of the entire fleet took the fearful plunge, thus indicating the surrender of the remaining vessels, did the fighting cease, and the useless sacrifice of brave men come to an end. We now signaled the flagship of Helium's navy to approach, and when she was within hailing distance, I called out that we had the Princess Deja Thoris on board, and that we wished to transfer her to the flagship, that she might be taken immediately to the city. As the full import of my announcement bore in upon them, a great cry arose from the decks of the flagship, and a moment later the colors of the Princess of Helium broke from a hundred points upon her upper works. When the other vessels of the squadron caught the meaning of the signals flashed them, they took up the wild acclaim and unfurled her colors in the gleaming sunlight. The flagship bore down upon us, and as she swung gracefully to and touched our side, a dozen officers sprang upon our decks. As their astonished gaze fell upon the hundreds of green warriors who now came forth from the fighting shelters, they stopped aghast. But at sight of Kantos Khan, who advanced to meet them, they came forward, crowding about him. Deja Thoris and I then advanced, and they had no eyes for other than her. She received them gracefully, calling each by name, for they were men high in the esteem and service of her grandfather, and she knew them well. Lay your hands upon the shoulder of John Carter, she said to them, turning toward me. The man to whom Helium owes her princess, as well as her victory today. They were very courteous to me, and said many kind and complimentary things, but what seemed to impress them most was that I had won the aid of the fierce Tharks in my campaign for the liberation of Dejah Thoris and the relief of Helium. You owe your thanks more to another man than to me, I said, and here he is. Meet one of Barsoom's greatest soldiers and statesmen, Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of Thark. With the same polished courtesy that had marked their manner toward me, they extended their greetings to the great Thark. Nor, to my surprise, was he much behind them, in ease of bearing or in courtly speech. Though not a garrulous race, the Tharks are extremely formal, and their ways lend themselves amazingly to dignified and courtly manners. Dejah Thoris went aboard the flagship, and was much put out that I would not follow, 
but as i explained to her the battle was but partly won we still had the land forces of the besieging zorongans to account for and i would not leave tars tarkas until that had been accomplished the commander of the naval forces of helium promised to arrange to have the armies of helium attacked from the city in conjunction with our land attack and so the vessels separated and Dejah Thoris was borne in triumph back to the court of her grandfather, Tardos Moors, Jeddak of Helium. In the distance lay our fleet of transports, with the thoats of the green warriors, where they had remained during the battle. Without landing stages it was to be a difficult matter to unload these beasts upon the open plain, but there was nothing else for it, and so we put out for a point about ten miles from the city and began the task. It was necessary to lower the animals to the ground in slings, and this work occupied the remainder of the day and half the night. Twice we were attacked by parties of Zodongan cavalry, but with little loss, however, and after darkness shut down, they withdrew. As soon as the last thoat was unloaded, Tars Tarkas gave the command to advance, and in three parties we crept upon the Zodongan camp from the north, the south, and the east. About a mile from the main camp we encountered their outposts, and, as had been prearranged, accepted this as the signal to charge. With wild, ferocious cries, and amidst the nasty squealing of battle-enraged thoats, we bore down upon the Zodongans. We did not catch them napping, but found a well-entrenched battle-line confronting us. Time after time we were repulsed, until toward noon, I began to fear for the result of the battle. The Zodongans numbered nearly a million fighting men, gathered from pole to pole, wherever stretched their ribbon-like waterways, while pitted against them were less than a hundred thousand green warriors. The forces from Helium had not arrived, nor could we receive any word from them. Just at noon we heard heavy firing all along the line between the Zodongans and the cities, and we knew then that our much-needed reinforcements had come. Again Tars Tarkas ordered the charge, and once more the mighty thoats bore their terrible riders against the ramparts of the enemy. At the same moment the battle-line of Helium surged over the opposite breastworks of the Zodongans, and in another moment they were being crushed as between two millstones. Nobly they fought, but in vain. The plain before the city became a veritable shambles ere the last Zodongan surrendered. But finally the carnage ceased, the prisoners were marched back to Helium, and we entered the greater city's gates, a huge triumphal procession of conquering heroes. The broad avenues were lined with women and children, among which were the few men whose duties necessitated that they remain within the city during the battle. We were greeted with an endless round of applause, and showered with ornaments of gold, platinum, silver, and precious jewels. The city had gone mad with joy. My fierce tharks caused the wildest excitement and enthusiasm. Never before had an armed body of green warriors entered the gates of Helium, and that they came now as friends and allies filled the red men with rejoicing. That my poor services to Dejah Thoris had become known to the Heliumites was evidenced by the loud crying of my name, 
and by the loads of ornaments that were fastened upon me and my huge throat as we passed up the avenues to the palace for even in the face of the ferocious appearance of woola the populace pressed close about me as we approached this magnificent pile we were met by a party of officers who greeted us warmly and requested that tars tarkas and his jeds with the jeddax and jeds of his wild allies together with myself dismount and accompany them to receive from tartus moors an expression of his gratitude for our services at the top of the great steps leading up to the main portals of the palace stood the royal party and as we reached the lower steps one of their number descended to meet us he was an almost perfect specimen of manhood tall straight as an arrow superbly muscled and with the carriage and bearing of a ruler of men i did not need to be told that he was tardus moors jeddak of helium the first member of our party he met was tars tarkas and his first words sealed for ever the new friendship between the races that tardos moors he said earnestly may meet the greatest living warrior of barsoom is a priceless honor but that he may lay his hand on the shoulder of a friend and ally is a far greater boon jeddak of helium returned tars tarkas it has remained for a man of another world to teach the green warriors of barsoom the meaning of friendship to him we owe the fact that the hordes of thark can understand you that they can appreciate and reciprocate the sentiments so graciously expressed tardus moors then greeted each of the green jeddaks and jeds and to each spoke words of friendship and appreciation as he approached me he laid both hands upon my shoulders welcome my son he said that you are granted gladly and without one word of opposition the most precious jewel in all helium yes on all barsoom is sufficient earnest of my esteem we were then presented to moore's kajak jed of lesser helium and father of dejah thoris he had followed close behind tardos moore's and seemed even more affected by the meeting than had his father he tried a dozen times to express his gratitude to me but his voice choked with emotion and he could not speak and yet he had as i was to later learn a reputation for ferocity and fearlessness as a fighter that was remarkable even upon warlike barsoom in common with all helium he worshipped his daughter nor could he think of what she had escaped without deep emotion end of chapter twenty six chapter twenty seven of a princess of mars by edgar rice burroughs this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by thomas copeland chapter twenty seven from joy to death for ten days the hordes of thark and their wild allies were feasted and entertained and then loaded with costly presents and escorted by ten thousand soldiers of helium commanded by morse kajak they started on the return journey to their own lands the jed of lesser helium with a small party of nobles accompanied them all the way to thark to cement more closely the new bonds of peace and friendship 
Sola also accompanied Tars Tarkas, her father, who, before all his chieftains, had acknowledged her as his daughter. Three weeks later, Morse Kajak and his officers, accompanied by Tars Tarkas and Sola, returned upon a battleship that had been dispatched to Thark to fetch them in time for the ceremony which made Deja Thoris and John Carter one. For nine years I served in the councils and fought in the armies of Helium as a prince of the house of Tardos Moors. The people seemed never to tire of heaping honors upon me, and no day passed that did not bring some new proof of their love for my princess, the incomparable Deja Thoris. In a golden incubator, upon the roof of our palace, lay a snow-white egg. For nearly five years, ten soldiers of the Jeddak's guard had constantly stood over it, and not a day passed, when I was in the city, that Deja Thoris and I did not stand hand in hand before our little shrine, planning for the future, when the delicate shell should break. Vivid in my memory is the picture of the last night, as we sat there talking in low tones of the strange romance which had woven our lives together, and of this wonder which was coming to augment our happiness and fulfill our hopes. In the distance we saw the bright white light of an approaching airship, but we attached no special significance to so common a sight. Like a bolt of lightning it raced toward helium until its very speed bespoke the unusual. Flashing the signals which proclaimed it a dispatch-bearer for the Jeddak, it circled impatiently, awaiting the tardy patrol-boat which must convoy it to the palace docks. Ten minutes after it touched at the palace, a message called me to the council chamber, which I found filling with the members of that body. On the raised platform of the throne was Tardos Moors, pacing back and forth with tense, drawn face. When all were in their seats, he turned toward us. This morning, he said, word reached the several governments of Barsoom that the keeper of the atmosphere plant had made no wireless report for two days, nor had almost ceaseless calls upon him from a score of capitals elicited a sign of response. The ambassadors of the other nations asked us to take the matter in hand and hasten the assistant keeper to the plant. All day a thousand cruisers have been searching for him until just now one of them returns bearing his dead body, which was found in the pits beneath his house, horribly mutilated by some assassin. I do not need to tell you what this means to Barsoom. It would take months to penetrate those mighty walls. In fact, the work has already commenced, and there would be little to fear were the engine of the pumping plant to run as it should, and as they all have, for hundreds of years. But the worst, we fear, has happened. The instruments show a rapidly decreasing air pressure on all parts of Barsoom. The engine has stopped. My gentlemen, he concluded, we have at best three days to live. There was absolute silence for several minutes, and then a young noble arose and, with his drawn sword held high above his head, addressed Tartos Moors. The men of Helium have prided themselves that they have ever shown Barsoom how a nation of red men should live. 
now is our opportunity to show them how they should die let us go about our duties as though a thousand useful years still lay before us the chamber rang with applause and as there was nothing better to do than to allay the fears of the people by our example we went our ways with smiles upon our faces and sorrow gnawing at our hearts when i returned to my palace i found that the rumour already had reached ajothorus so i told her all that i had heard we have been very happy john carter she said and i thank whatever fate overtakes us that it permits us to die together the next two days brought no noticeable change in the supply of air but on the morning of the third day breathing became difficult at the higher altitudes of the rooftops the avenues and plazas of helium were filled with people all business had ceased for the most part the people looked bravely into the face of their unalterable doom here and there however men and women gave way to quiet grief toward the middle of the day many of the weaker commenced to succumb and within an hour the people of barsoom were sinking by thousands into the unconsciousness which precedes death by asphyxiation Dejathoris and I, with the other members of the royal family, had collected in a sunken garden within an inner courtyard of the palace. We conversed in low tones, when we conversed at all, as the awe of the grim shadow of death crept over us. Even Woola seemed to feel the weight of the impending calamity, for he pressed close to Dejathoris and to me, whining pitifully. The little incubator had been brought from the roof of our palace at request of Dejathoris, and she sat gazing longingly upon the unknown little life that now she would never know. As it was becoming perceptibly difficult to breathe, Tardos Moors arose, saying, Let us bid each other farewell. The days of the greatness of Barsoom are over. Tomorrow's sun will look down upon a dead world which through all eternity must go swinging through the heavens, peopled not even by memories. It is the end. He stooped and kissed the women of his family, and laid his strong hand upon the shoulders of the men. As I turned sadly from him, my eyes fell upon Dejathoris. Her head was drooping upon her breast, to all appearances she was lifeless. With a cry I sprang to her and raised her in my arms. Her eyes opened and looked into mine. Kiss me, John Carter, she murmured. I love you. I love you. It is cruel that we must be torn apart, who are just starting upon a life of love and happiness. As I pressed her dear lips to mine, the old feeling of unconquerable power and authority rose in me. The fighting blood of Virginia sprang to life in my veins. It shall not be, my princess, I cried. There is, there must be, some way. And John Carter, who has fought his way through a strange world for love of you, will find it. And with my words there crept above the threshold of my conscious mind a series of nine long forgotten sounds. Like a flash of lightning in the darkness, their full purport dawned upon me. The key to the three doors of the atmosphere plant. Turning suddenly toward Tardis Moors, 
as I still clasped my dying love to my breast, I cried, A flyer, Jeddak, quick, order your swiftest flyer to the palace top. I can save Barsoom yet. He did not wait to question, but in an instant a guard was racing to the nearest dock, and though the air was thin and almost gone at the rooftop, they managed to launch the fastest one-man air scout machine that the skill of Barsoom had ever produced. Kissing Dejathoris a dozen times, and commanding Woola, who would have followed me to remain and guard her, I bounded with my old agility and strength to the high ramparts of the palace, and in another moment I was headed toward the goal of the hopes of all Barsoom. I had to fly low to get sufficient air to breathe, but I took a straight course across an old sea-bottom, and so had to rise only a few feet above the ground. I travelled with awful velocity, for my errand was a race against time with death. The face of Dejah Thoris hung always before me. As I turned for a last look, as I left the palace garden, I had seen her stagger and sink upon the ground beside the little incubator. That she had dropped into the last coma which would end in death, if the air supply remained unreplenished, I well knew and so, throwing caution to the winds, I flung overboard everything but the engine and compass, even to my ornaments, and, lying on my belly along the deck with one hand on the steering wheel, and the other pushing the speed lever to its last notch, I split the thin air of dying Mars with the speed of a meteor. An hour before dark, the great walls of the atmosphere plant loomed suddenly before me, and with a sickening thud I plunged to the ground before the small door which was holding the spark of life from the inhabitants of an entire planet. Beside the door a great crew of men had been laboring to pierce the wall, but they had scarcely scratched the flint-like surface, and now most of them lay in the last sleep from which not even air would awaken them. Conditions seemed much worse here than at Helium, and it was with difficulty that I breathed at all. There were a few men still conscious, and to one of these I spoke. "'If I can open these doors, is there a man who can start the engines?' I asked. "'I can,' he replied. "'If you open quickly, I can last but a few moments more. But it is useless. They are both dead, and no one else upon Barsoom knew the secret of these awful locks.' For three days men crazed with fear have surged about this portal in vain attempts to solve its mystery. I had no time to talk. I was becoming very weak, and it was with difficulty that I controlled my mind at all. But with a final effort, as I sank weakly to my knees, I hurled the nine thought-waves at that awful thing before me. The Martian had crawled to my side, and with staring eyes fixed on the single panel before us, we waited in the silence of death. Slowly the mighty door receded before us. I attempted to rise and follow it, but I was too weak. After it, I cried to my companion, and if you reach the pump room, turn loose all the pumps. It is the only chance Barsoom has to exist tomorrow. From where I lay, I opened the second door and then the third, and as I saw the hope of Barsoom crawling weakly on hands and knees through the last doorway, I sank unconscious upon the ground.
End of chapter 27Chapter Twenty Eight of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Twenty Eight at the Arizona Cave. It was dark when I opened my eyes again. Strange, stiff garments were upon my body, garments that cracked and powdered away from me as I rose to a sitting posture. I felt myself over from head to foot and from head to foot I was clothed, though when I fell unconscious at the little doorway I had been naked. Before me was a small patch of moonlit sky which showed through a ragged aperture. As my hands passed over my body they came in contact with pockets, and in one of these a small parcel of matches wrapped in oiled paper. One of these matches I struck, and its dim flame lighted up what appeared to be a huge cave toward the back of which I discovered a strange still figure huddled over a tiny bench. As I approached it I saw that it was the dead and mummified remains of a little old woman with long black hair, and the thing it leaned over was a small charcoal burner upon which rested a round copper vessel containing a small quantity of greenish powder. Behind her, depending from the roof upon rawhide thongs, and stretching entirely across the cave was a row of human skeletons. From the thong which held them stretched another to the dead hand of the little old woman. As I touched the cord the skeletons swung to the motion with a noise as of the rustling of dry leaves. It was a most grotesque and horrid tableau, and I hastened out into the fresh air, glad to escape from so gruesome a place. The sight that met my eyes as I stepped out upon a small ledge which ran before the entrance of the cave filled me with consternation. A new heaven and a new landscape met my gaze. The silvered mountains in the distance, the almost stationary moon hanging in the sky, the cacti-studded valley below me were not of Mars. I could scarce believe my eyes but the truth slowly forced itself upon me. I was looking upon Arizona, from the same ledge from which ten years before I had gazed with longing upon Mars. Burying my head in my arms I turned, broken and sorrowful, down the trail from the cave. Above me shone the red eye of Mars, holding her awful secret forty-eight million miles away. Did the Martian reach the pump-room? Did the vitalizing air reach the people of that distant planet in time to save them? Was my Dejah Thoris alive? Or did her beautiful body lie cold in death beside the tiny golden incubator in the sunken garden of the inner courtyard of the palace of Tardos Mors, the Jeddak of Helium? For ten years I have waited and prayed for an answer to my questions. For ten years I have waited and prayed to be taken back to the world of my lost love. I would rather lie dead beside her, there, than live on earth all those millions of terrible miles from her. The old mine which I found untouched has made me fabulously wealthy, but what care I for wealth? 
as I sit here tonight in my little study overlooking the Hudson, just twenty years have elapsed since I first opened my eyes on Mars. I can see her shining in the sky through the little window by my desk, and tonight she seems calling to me again as she has not called before since that long dead night. And I think I can see across that awful abyss of space a beautiful black-haired woman standing in the garden of a palace, and at her side is a little boy who puts his arms around her as she points into the sky toward the planet Earth, while at their feet is a huge and hideous creature with a heart of gold. I believe that they are waiting there for me, and something tells me that I shall soon know. The End End of Chapter 28 End of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.